Hi everyone, this is Scott Shapiro and it is uh, episode 15 of the Jurisprudence Course podcast. That was the band, The Night They Drove All Dixie Down. And this episode, we will be continuing with the planning theory of law. Uh, the, this episode will be split into three parts. The first part, what I'll do is I'll try to explain how the planning theory answers the possibility puzzle in Hume's challenge. This is the, those basic puzzles that I introduced at the beginning of the podcast and whose um, uh, purported solutions by Austin and Hart we discussed. In the second uh, part, I'll talk about um, the logic of planning and why if you take seriously the idea that laws are plans, uh, you will not be an inclusive legal positivist, nor will you be a Dworkinian. And then finally, in part three, I will talk about interpretation, legal interpretation, and meta-interpretation, which is um, uh, how to determine what the right interpretive methodology is for a particular legal system, and how the planning theory addresses it. So let me, okay, I got so much stuff to cover today, so let me uh, just jump right in and talk about the possibility puzzle. Recall the possibility puzzle was um, the problem of understanding how legal authority is possible. On the one hand, in order for there to be legal authority, there has to be a norm which confers that power on some person or on some body. On the other hand, it seems like you need somebody who has legal authority that can create that norm which confers that power, which then creates an infinite regress. Um, the planning theory has a very straightforward answer to the possibility puzzle. Firstly, it opts for the egg principle, which says that um, all authority comes from norms. And the norms in question that start off the whole system and hierarchy of legal authority, according to the planning theory, are the norms of instrumental rationality. The idea is that we are planning creatures. We are able to coordinate our activities over time and across persons, enabling us through a form of partial staged deliberation and 
allocating roles across people, we're able to solve problems that we wouldn't be able to solve otherwise. The fundamental foundation of a legal system is a shared plan. That is a plan that legal officials share, which has been designed for them, at least in part, to engage in the activity of planning and that each, or I should say most, of the officials accept their part in the plan. I take it that the ability to adopt a plan and to share a plan is something that, well, like in philosophy, everything is um, mysterious and challenging, but in the scheme of things, the idea that we're able to adopt plans and share plans with one another seems pretty unmysterious. Uh, we can have a plan to go meet, to go to a movie, or a plan um, to clean the uh, house, or to uh, paint um, a big building, or to make a movie, or to fight a war. There are many plans that we can have, and it seems completely uncontroversial or unproblematic that rational agents such as ourselves have that normative power to create those plans for ourselves and for those around us. Okay, so the planning theory rests legal authority ultimately on the power of planning agents to adopt norms for themselves in order to coordinate their activities over time and across persons. Now, note that how the same problems that the other accounts we discussed have. So, for example, Austin thought that all laws were threat backed by sanctions and that they were commands and that ultimately all legal authority rested on power. Um, the planning theory, on the other hand, thinks that laws are plans, or I'll discuss later on in the case of custom, they're plan-like norms. But in general, laws are plans, and there are many different kinds of plans that you can that can be adopted and applied. So, for example, there can be uh, plans that tell you what to do. They would be the duty-imposing plans. And then there's the plans that tell other people that they have the ability to plan for others. They would be the power-conferring plans. Uh, plans can be adopted in an institutional setting, even if you don't know what the plans are, as long as the plans that, that structure the institution say that you don't need to know what the plans are in order for them to be adopted. Um, we don't have any problem here with the continuity or persistence of legal authority. So when Rex 1 dies and Rex 2 takes over, he becomes the sovereign, even though there's no habit of obedience because, well, the shared plan um, says that he's the sovereign. And uh, the plans that have been made by Rex 1 stay valid in Rex 2's reign because the shared plan accepted by legal officials in that system says that plans made by a sovereign persist until they are repealed. So 
I hope that you see that the planning theory is it, it does a better job than Austin. Yeah, I think it does a better job than Hart does as well. Re- recall the problem with Hart was first that he assimilated uh, the social rules of recognition, uh, change, and adjudication to the behavior of legal officials, and we argued that um, norms and behaviors are two different things. You can't say that social rules are social practices because practices are of a different metaphysical category than rules. In the case of um, the planning theory, the plans are something separate from the behavior of conforming to the plans. The plans are the object of the propositional attitudes of intending to follow the plan. Um, Another problem that we had associated with Hart was that not all social practices actually generate social rules. We talked about things like not dropping, um, I don't know if we use this example, but like they're in general, people accept from the internal point of view that they shouldn't drop their toaster in the bath when they're in it. Um, but there's no such a rule. Um, and so what Hart failed to do was he failed to specify what kinds of practices generate rules. We investigated the possibility of coordination conventions maybe following that, um, um, maybe giving a candidate social practice that generates social rules, but we rejected that by saying that it required that legal officials have a certain preference for coordination, which seemed um, um, dubious from an empirical point of view, but also dubious from a philosophical point of view to insist that legal officials have certain types of motivations in order to engage in the law. From the share from the planning theorist perspective, it's very clear what kinds of social practices generate um, the shared plan, that is the adoption and sharing of plans. Um, that is, there has to be, the plan has to be created with the group in mind, and the plan has to be accepted by most of the officials. Um, and there's a couple other um, conditions that I set out in legality. Um, but in general, the idea is that not all social practices generate shared plans, only the ones that involve plan adoption and sharing are those that generate these um, norms which characterize the foundations of legal system. Unlike Hart, who thinks that there are these um, three main secondary rules of recognition, rule of change, and rule of adjudication, the planning theory melds them all together and thinks that the shared plan of a legal system um, imposes duties on officials to apply certain plans um, that have been made in accordance with other parts of the plan. It gives power and ability to legal officials to change what the plans are, and it also gives power to other officials to determine whether the plans apply. So this idea of you having three separate rules Um, In Hart's view, they all kind of get merged into one shared plan for the system, which I call the master plan for the system. 
Okay, so in any event, that is the way in which the planning theory attempts to solve the possibility puzzle. And it's a positivistic solution because the shared plan which forms the basis of the legal system is created by social facts alone, not by moral facts. There's the social facts of plan adoption and sharing. Um, That leads us to the to Hume's challenge. How is it the case that merely by adopting a plan can legal authority be generated and legal obligations be generated? If you're telling me, Mr. Planning Theory, that the the conditions for possibility of a shared plan is the adoption and sharing, but moral facts are not necessary. How can we get the moral powers of sovereignty and legal authority and the moral deontic concepts like obligation and rights? How do we get that just from social facts alone? Okay. So, In order to get this, in in order to show why the planning theory does not fall prey to Hume's challenge, I want to just emphasize, and this will in some sense deepen the the challenge, I want to emphasize that the shared plan of a legal system does not impose any moral obligations on anyone or confer moral powers on anyone just by virtue of the fact that people have adopted and shared the plan. I mean, the the plan can be highly unjust. It could be designed to repress minorities in a community. It can be designed to engage in ethnic cleansing or genocide or whatever. So the mere fact that the plan is adopted and shared does not generate moral obligations or moral authority. I do want to point out that it does generate a kind of normativity. It's the normativity that comes from plans. And the normativity that comes from plans is the normativity which derives from instrumental rationality. So basically, if you adopt a plan to, let's say, go jog today, well, that imposes certain obligations on you, rational obligations for you to actually comply with the plan. If you still intend to go jog, but you don't actually jog, then you've engaged in some type of irrational behavior. Obviously, you haven't done anything immoral by itself that you didn't go jog, uh, but you did act irrationally. So there is a kind of inner rationality to the law that applies just by virtue of the fact that you if you're, let's say, a legal official and you've 
adopted a plan or you're part of the plan, then you're rationally required to follow through. You may not be morally required to do so. So then, so, so, so then the question becomes, how do we get legal authority and legal obligations out of mere instrumental rationality? And the answer is you don't. Um, and the key to understanding how to deal with Hume's challenge is to drill down on what it means to say that somebody has legal authority or they're under a legal obligation. So what I want to do is I want to distinguish between two different um, roles that the word legal plays in statements about legal obligations or legal authority. The first interpretation of legal that I'd like to mention is the adjectival version. So the ad adjectival version of legal and legal authority treats legal as though it were an adjective. So authority and obligation, well, those are moral concepts under this way of thinking. So to say that you have uh, legal authority is to say that you have a moral authority of a certain sort, but it's a legal moral, moral authority, meaning it's a moral authority that arises by virtue of being part of a legal system. Same thing with legal obligation. A legal obligation under the adjectival interpretation is that you're under a moral obligation which is legal, meaning it's a moral obligation which arises because of the operations of legal institutions. So legal authority and legal obligation under the adjectival interpretation of legal are moral obligations and moral authority which arises through the operation of legal institutions. Now, if that's what, if when we think about Hume's challenge and we interpret and we ask, well, how can you get legal authority and legal obligations out of mere social facts? And we interpret legal adjectivally, then the answer is you can't. You can't get moral obligations and moral authority from mere social facts. So if we're going to try to solve Hume's challenge, we have to interpret legal in a different way. What's the alternative to the adjectival interpretation? Well, it's what I call the perspectival interpretation. So to say that you are legally obligated to do something or that you have legal authority is not to say that you have a moral obligation or moral authority that arises because of the law, but rather it's a way of distancing yourself from the claims of moral obligation or moral authority. It's a way of saying from the perspective of the law, this person has moral authority. Or from the perspective of the law, you're morally obligated to do something. So the, the role that legal plays there is not as an adjective that modifies authority or obligation, but rather it's like a modal operator. It's something that gets pulled out from the middle of the sentence and kind of gets put up front to say that you have a legal obligation to pay your taxes under the perspectival interpretation is to basically saying from the legal point of view, you're morally obligated to pay your taxes. Now, 
you're not saying from your point of view, or even from the moral point of view, you're morally obligated. You're saying from the legal point of view, you're morally obligated. It's a way of being agnostic towards the claims of the law. Now, what is the legal point of view? The legal point of view is a moral theory, it may not be the correct moral theory, but it's a moral theory according to which the shared plan of a legal system uh, allocates rights and responsibilities correctly. So the legal point of view says that the shared plan is the morally right plan. So when you say from the legal point of view, you're morally obligated to pay your taxes, essentially what you're saying is from this perspective of this normative theory, the shared plan which structures the legal system is morally appropriate and that the plans which were created subject to that shared plan generates a moral obligation. Again, you, you are not endorsing the legal point of view by saying you're legally obligated to pay your taxes under the perspectival interpretation. What you're just simply saying is, look, according to the legal point of view, this is what you're morally supposed to do. I'm not saying you're supposed to do it. Now, if you, I, I think that this is the way that we talk about the law all the time. You know, you say, well, should I, um, should I do X? You say, well, I mean, legally you're supposed to do X. That's a way of saying, I'm not saying you're supposed to do X. I'm just saying from the perspective of the law, you're supposed to do X. That is, you're morally supposed to do X. But I'm not endorsing that view. Now, if the legal point of view is the point of view of the shared plan, then it turns out that social facts can generate legal authority and legal obligations understood perspectively. Because from the perspective, because the, when you say you're legally obligated to do something or you have legal authority, you're speaking from the perspective of the shared plan. And so the social facts which generate the shared plan also generate the normative perspective according to which the shared plan is analyzed. That shared plan sees, I'm sorry, that perspective sees the shared plan as being morally appropriate. And so, of course, the shared plan can generate legal obligations and legal authority if you're using the word legally and legal perspectively. If you're using it adjectivally, you cannot generate legal rights or legal obligations or legal authority. So to summarize, uh, the planning theory solves the possibility puzzle by claiming that the foundation of all legal systems is a shared plan, which is generated by virtue of the powers conferred by the principles of instrument rationality onto planning agents like human beings, and that the shared plan is generated by, it, it, it dep ultimately depends on social facts alone and that Hume's challenge is solved by interpreting 
the word legal perspectively. So if you say, how can social facts generate legal obligations and legal authority? You say, well, they can understood perspectively. Um, they can't understood adjectively. Okay, well, that's, that's it for part one. Uh, take a break and back to see what follows from all of this. Thanks. Okay, that was Van Morrison Wavelength. Um, part two, uh, the logic of planning. What follows from the fact that laws are plans? Well, let's think for a second about what a plan is. What, what does a plan do? A plan cuts off deliberation about what you're supposed to do, and it settles what you are supposed to do under, under certain circumstances. And so when those circumstances apply, you're supposed to take the plan as what you're supposed to do. That is, you don't balance reasons to try to figure out what you're supposed to do. The point of the plan is to answer that question for you. Now, if the point of a plan is to answer the question, what are you supposed to do? Then certain things follow from it. And one of the things that follow, follows from it, I call the simple logic of planning argument. And the simple logic of planning argument goes as follows. It says that the existence and content of a plan cannot be determined by facts whose existence the plan aims to settle. Let me give you an example of, 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 of why the logic of planning argument makes sense. Suppose I want to know whether I have a plan to go to Mexico for winter, for winter vacation. Now, if I have such a plan, then the right way to discover its existence can't require me to first figure out whether I go to Mexico this winter for vacation. After all, the whole point of having a plan is to settle that very question. If I were to deliberate on the merits of going to Mexico for vacation this winter, I would be violating the logic of planning because I would be doing the activity that the plan is supposed to do for me. If I have to discover, I'm sorry, if I have to deliberate in order to discover the plan, then I don't have the plan. It's like the point of a plan is to answer the question, what should I do? And if I have to answer the question, what, what should I do in order to figure out whether I have the plan, then the plan's not doing anything for me. I hope you can see where this is going. This is going 
towards arguing that inclusive legal positivism violates the simple logic of planning. Why? If the point of having law is to settle matters about what morality requires so that members of the community can realize certain goals and values, if they can solve certain moral problems by referring to the law, then legal norms would be useless if the way to discover their existence is to engage in moral reasoning. Like if you had to figure out what you should do morally speaking in order to know what the law was, then the law wouldn't be doing any work. The analogy that I use in legality is that legal norms that lack institutional pedigrees are like can openers that work only when the can is already opened. I hope you can see why I fucking hate inclusive legal positivism. Because it requires you to know the very thing that the law is supposed to answer in order to know what the law is. I mean, if the rule of recognition says, oh, well, the law is what you're morally supposed to do in this situation, or the law is something is not the law if it violates some moral requirement, then we're kind of ruining the whole idea of having the law because the law is supposed to answer that question. And if you have to answer it in order to know whether the law is there, then it can't answer that question for you. Now notice that the that exclusive legal positivism doesn't violate the simple logic of planning argument. Because the existence or content of the law can only be determined by social facts according to the exclusive legal positivist, there's no danger that the process of legal discovery will defeat, will defeat the very purpose of having law. Social facts are determined by empirical observation, not by moral deliberation. That's why pedigrees, institutional sources, social facts are the right source and ground for law. They enable law to play its plan-like function of enabling us to use the law in order to answer questions about what we ought to do. Therefore, exclusive legal positivism doesn't violate the simple logic of planning argument. Now, one of the things I want to do right now is kind of um, clarify something that I think people often get confused about. Exclusive legal positivism says that legal norms can't be determined by moral facts. It can only be determined by social facts. But that doesn't rule out the possibility that legal norms that have social foundations can also contain moral concepts. What do I mean? Imagine that there's a rule that prohibits the enforcement of unconscionable contracts. I'm gonna take it that unconscionability here is a moral concept, that is it would be 
grossly unfair to hold people to the terms of this contract. So what it says is that um, if a contract has some grossly unfair terms in it, then it need not be enforced by courts. There is no problem with an exclusive legal positivist accepting such a rule. Why? Because although the rule doesn't set, settle every moral question that arises with respect to contract enforcement, it, it doesn't, for example, tell us when a contract is unconscionable or not, it still does work. It's not useless. It doesn't violate the logic of planning. For the rule does settle a very important issue about contract enforcement, namely that unconscionable contracts should not be enforced by judges. So if a judge is following a rule which says don't enforce unconscionable contracts, they're not engaged in unrestricted moral deliberation. They're going to focus on the issue of unconscionability, ask themselves whether the contract in their case is unconscionable, and will not enforce contracts that they think are unconscionable. The law in question still serves as a plan because it takes some moral issues off the table. Put it another way is that in order for a law to serve as a plan, it's not necessary for the law to eliminate moral reasoning. It only needs to displace some of that moral deliberation. As long as certain issues are taken off the table, and deliberation is channeled in a certain direction, the rule will fulfill its function as a plan. So the exclusive legal positivist doesn't um, object to rules that have moral concepts in them as long as those rules have issued from some institution. What the exclusive legal positivist rejects is the idea that a norm which satisfies that plan that doesn't have a institutional pedigree, that that can still count as a law. What do I mean? So let's, let's say it turns out that contracts that charge a 20% interest rate are unconscionable. Let's just say from a moral point of view, 20% interest is unconscionable. And let's say that no legal institution has decided that 20% is usurious and so therefore unconscionable. The only law in question is that judges should not enforce unconscionable contracts. The, inc the inclusive legal positivists would say, well, um, since morally speaking, 20% interest is unconscionable, any contract that charges 20% is legally unenforceable. The legal norm which says contracts that charge 20% interest rates should not be enforced, that is a legal norm according to the inclusive legal positivist. The exclusive legal positivist says you're out of your mind. The fact that no legal institution has picked out that interest rate as being unconscionable 
means that that cannot be a law. It is true that unconscionable contracts stated in that way are unenforceable, but the law, until some institution has decided that 20% interest rate is unconscionable, 20% interest rate is not yet legally unenforceable if it's in a contract. Once an institution has decided 20% is un unconscionable, then it's the law that 20% contracts are legally unenforceable. So, just to summarize, if laws are plans, and the way the plans work is they tell you what you're supposed to do without deliberating on the merits, then it would turn out that you can't determine the existence or content of a law if you have to deliberate about what you morally ought to do. And this is exactly the kind of uh, requirement that the that inclusive legal positivism uh, places on um, actors in the legal system. Uh, exclusive legal positivism does not uh, place the same burdens on uh, agents, and that's why exclusive legal positivism rules. Um, okay, I'm going to take a break, and we're going to come back to how the logical planning applies to Dworkin's theory of law. Hey everyone, that was Blind Melon, No Rain, and this is part three. At the beginning of the podcast, I said that I would talk about legal interpretation and meta-interpretation of the planning theory, but it turns out that part one and part two took longer than I expected, and then also it's Father's Day, and I would like to get out into the sunshine. Uh, so I want to wrap up very quickly by talking about Dworkin's theory of law and how it um, uh, deals with um, the planning theory. I, I one of my great um, uh, stories or events that ever happened to me uh, in 2005. I gave um, a paper in London at uh, Ronnie Dworkin's um, uh, symposium at UCL and. Um, it was the first time I had, you know, kind of went mano a mano or uh, baby a mano uh, with uh, with Ronnie Dworkin, and um, and uh, at one point he said, "Okay, okay, okay, laws are plans. So what?" Um, and I remember saying to him, "Aha! You can't." say that because if you think that laws are plans, then you can't be a Dworkinian. And I made the argument, he goes, okay, you're right, laws aren't plans. Um, so let me tell you the argument that I made to him um, at that point, and then um, 
that could be either a reason to reject Dworkin's theory of law or could be a re reason to reject the planning theory. But let me, let me, uh, let me kind of rehearse the argument. The idea is, I mean, it's, it's, it's just an extension of the simple logic of planning argument. I call it the general logic of planning argument. Um, and it goes the following. Like what's the what's the basic idea of the planning theory? The basic idea of planning theory is that we live in a very complex society, and people have lots of different views about how we ought to act. And there's a great need for coordination. And Essentially, what the law does is it enables us to solve those problems we wouldn't be able to solve otherwise in the circumstances of legality. That is, where circumstances are complex and contentious and where alternative forms of social planning would increase the costs of um, deliberation to the point where we actually never get anything um, uh, solved. So we move over to this sophisticated institutional form of social planning, which allows us to solve, hopefully, solve those problems that we wouldn't be able to solve otherwise. Now, if that is the idea, is the idea is like to provide answers to moral problems that we wouldn't be able to solve otherwise, then the last thing you would be would be a, it would be a Dworkinian. Why? Because Dworkin's constructive interpretation is all about discovering the existence and content of the law by engaging in moral deliberation. Remember, for him, to figure out what the grounds of law are requires thinking about what would make legal practice the best it could be. And to make the legal practice the best it can be requires us figuring out what both fits and justifies legal practice. But if we're thinking about moral fit and justification, this is precisely introducing the very considerations that the law is supposed to take off the table. That is, if you have to ask what would make the law the best that it can be in order to figure out what the law is, what you're doing is you're introducing the disease that the law was aimed to cure, namely, what should I do? I call this the general logic of planning argument, which goes according, it goes as follows. The interpretation of any member of a system of plans cannot be determined by facts whose existence any member of that system aims to settle. Now, this is a more general idea than the simple logic of planning argument. The simple logic of planning argument said um, the existence of content of a plan can't be determined by the facts those that plan is designed to answer. This takes it from this uh, from a systemic point of view. It says the existence of content of any particular plan can't be determined by figuring out um, facts that some other plan of the system is designed to solve. Okay, and so the base, but but that's precisely what. Dworkin asks you to do. He asks you to say, for any particular legal question, theorize the entire legal practice. Tell me what makes that practice the best that it can be, and then I will tell you what you are supposed to do in a particular instance. 
Well, that would just kind of completely ruin what the point of the law is. Now, I just want to end by pointing out that Dworkin's theory really violates the logic of planning in a way that inclusive legal positivism doesn't. That is, I mean, they both violate the logic of planning, but Dworkin does it, Dworkin's theory does it in such a violent, um, ugly way. Let me, let, me, let me just see if I can um, get you to see um, uh, the difference between inclusive legal positivism and Dworkin when it comes to the logic of planning. Right. Um, as I said, that the um, the problem with inclusive legal positivism is it permits moral considerations to determine the existence and content of legal norms, even though legal norms aim to settle the existence of these moral considerations. That is, the problem is that inclusive legal positivism requires the legal interpreter to answer questions that have not yet been answered when the very purpose of legal norms is to answer those questions in the first place. Now, the objection that I just made in this part against Dworkin's theory is not that it represents as settled moral questions that have not yet been settled. The problem is, is that it actually unsettles those questions that have been settled. That is, insofar as the Dworkinian constructive interpreter has to delve into moral philosophy in order to answer questions about the justification of state coercion, everything about legal practice, the Dworkinian constructive interpreter actually renders previous decisions by legal institutions on these moral questions moot. What it does is it puts issues back on the table, that which have been taken off the table. And doing so, it frustrates the ability to guide, organize, and monitor conduct in the circumstances of legality that is in complex, contentious, and arbitrary environments. So I, I really think that Dworkin's theory, from a planning perspective, really screws the pooch because it, 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 it requires you to unsettle all the things that the law was supposed to settle in order to answer any particular legal question. And that is like a really bad thing from the perspective of the planning theory. Anyway, I haven't talked about the problem of theoretical disagreements or how to pick uh, interpretive methodology. I'm going to have to do that next week, um, episode 16. Anyway, I, ho I wish everyone a happy Father's Day um, and a happy and safe um, uh, week. Take care. Okay, that was Van Morrison Wavelength. Um, part two, uh, the, then it's the law that 20% contracts are legally unenforceable.
So, just to summarize, if laws are plans, and the way the plans work is they tell you what you're supposed to do without deliberating on the merits, then it would turn out that you can't determine the existence or content of a law if you have to deliberate about what you morally ought to do. And this is exactly the kind of uh, requirement that the that inclusive legal positivism uh, places on um, actors in the legal system. Uh, exclusive legal positivism does not uh, place the same burdens on uh, agents, and that's why exclusive legal positivism rules. Um, okay, I'm going to take a break, and we're going to come back to how the logical planning applies to Dworkin's theory of law.